Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. In today's podcast, I speak with Sherry Tucker about her new book, Dance Floor Democracy, The Social Geography of Memory at the Hollywood Canteen. In the book, Sherry Tucker explores how jitterbugging swing culture has come to represent World War II in U.S. national memory. Hey, Sherry. Well, thanks for doing this interview. Could you please uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book? Sure, Rich. And first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to read my book and for the opportunity to talk about it. I am a professor of American Studies at University of Kansas in Lawrence. And my work has been primarily about jazz and gender and race. And more recently, uh, my work has been, I say recently, like the last 10 years, I've also been really interested in improvisation studies, which has a slightly different but very uh, complementary orientation to jazz studies as an interdisciplinary uh, field. I'm also uh, an oral historian, so much of my work involves a methodology of open interviews with people where I sit down and um, you know, tr- listen not only to the content of what people have to say, um, but also about the ways that people tell the story and the ways that they tell it to me in a in a in a moment in time. Um, why did you decide to write this book? Why the Hollywood Canteen? Well, this book, like many projects, came out of a previous project. So I was working on my first book, which was called Swing Shift, All-Girl Bands of the 1940s. And in that book, I interviewed women musicians from all women jazz and swing bands who had been active throughout the war years playing, uh, playing you know, big band music. And that project um, brought the Hollywood Canteen to me. I knew what the Hollywood Canteen was, and in case anybody listening doesn't know what it is, let me just say the Hollywood Canteen was a very famous club, like a USO club, where uh, civilians would entertain soldiers. And and during World War II, a lot of those clubs involved jitterbugging. So there would be swing music and people jitterbugging and people volunteering to make sandwiches and all of this stuff for the troops. So the Hollywood Canteen was the super famous uh, version of such a club. And it was located in Hollywood on the corner of Cahuenga and Sunset in this big wooden barn-like structure. The soldiers standing in lines outside waiting to get in and the volunteers would enter in through the back and um, it was. Uh, it shows up in documentaries about home front. Uh, you know the home front war years. It shows up in uh, sometimes in reenactments of World War II swing culture. So, but with the way the Hollywood Canteen came back to me in a different way was that the women musicians that I talked to, several of them talked about it as a kind of a different and interesting place. Um, sometimes in terms of race. Now Hollywood was very segregated during World War II. This is something that um, that even the people, the white people in Hollywood didn't necessarily know, uh, having to do with this spatial arrangement of Los Angeles, which is enormous. So if a, if a neighborhood is a white, uh, kind of a white neighborhood where uh, people of color have difficulty uh, gaining entrance, or it's unpredictable in gaining entrance to to restaurants and nightclubs and stuff. But the the white people there might not even realize they live in in uh, in a segregated area if it's cushioned by other such neighborhoods where there's no official rules like Jim Crow rules, but that there are um, you know establishments that won't allow people in, etc. So the Hollywood Canteen is is smack dab in the middle of Hollywood, but uh, it was. Um, Apparently, according to uh, some of the people who talked to me and also 
the newspaper reports of the day, um, it was apparently integrated. And so here's a contradiction is it's supposed to be integrated. And, and then when I started looking at the biographies and autobiographies of, of movie stars and reading about what they did at the Hollywood canteen, it's celebrated as integrated there too. But then when you look at pictures of the Hollywood canteen and there are millions of them, they're almost always predominantly or, or actually entirely apparently white. So one starts to wonder integrated for whom, you know, is it, is it an, is this an integrated dance floor in Hollywood that everyone experiences as, as integrated? Um, is it, um, is it a, one of those photo ops that corporations often do? I mean, apparently it's not a photo op, but is it some kind of a narrative opportunity to say it's integrated, but it's a colorblind version where it's not really integrated. So I started thinking, you know, my last project was interviewing people um, in swing who swing culture, World War II settings that had been completely forgotten. What if I had went to one that was, you know, kind of relentlessly remembered in a particular way and invited a diverse group of uh, former canteen goers to talk about what they remembered about their bodies on that dance floor? Well, because this is a, a podcast dedicated to popular music, um, one thing I, I wanted to to get your thoughts on is um, what is the relationship between dance and popular music? What insights can we gain about music when we look at it through the lens of the dance floor? This, okay, Rich, this was a revelation to me, and I'm so happy that you bring this up. I have to say that this project also brought me to dance, and I wish I'd been brought to dance much, much earlier uh, I don't know what generation you're you're in. <laughs> I think I'm I'm completely older than you are. I think I came up in the kind of freeform acid dancing generation <laughs> where we didn't do partner dancing, and so um, that was my dance orientation, and which I thoroughly enjoyed. And there's nothing wrong with it, but this was a different kind of dance. And here I am, a swing scholar who had not really had experience in partner dancing. And I had to learn about it. I had to talk to dancers. I had to take dance lessons. I had, and I read the, I read the rich body of dance literature that is absolutely uh, amazing in terms of talking about um, musical perception, among other things. So what dance brings is embodiment. It brings perception. It brings multi, multiple perspectives. It, it brings an attention and awareness to um, the ways that music is perceived not only through cochlear hearing, but through vibration, the other ways, the other ways that vibrations um, uh, reach bodies. And so, you know, even sitting in a chair, it makes me think, about music differently to have done that work in dance. It makes me uh, aware of when I'm listening to music and, um, you know, whether I'm in a chair or I'm dancing or I'm moving around, that I'm experiencing that music through various uh, resonant, uh, you know, resonant areas of my body, sometimes my chest. Uh, sometimes when I'm listening to music, I pay more attention to, um, to you know, I might be hearing it, feeling it coming up through the floor in my feet or in, in my chair. So I think that um, I, I guess what I'm doing right here is I'm, I'm giving a plea to anybody out there who writes about popular music who has not looked at dance. And I know many people have, but if anyone has not looked at dance, go look at the dance literature and think about um, the way that dance scholars and dancers um, experience and talk about music, because it might, it, it certainly changed the way I thought about music. Um, I'm sad it had to hit me over the head by being a, a swing scholar who never looked at swing dance, <laughs> but it is, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, the book uses the phrase uh, dance floor democracy in the title. Um, what do you mean by this? Okay. Dance floor democracy. <sighs> First of all, let me talk about what I think there's kind of two levels to this title that I want to touch on. One is that dance floor democracy is 
gets at the way that the Hollywood Canteen dance floor was written about in the press of the day and the way that it has been nostalgified in the way that the Hollywood Canteen is remembered as a site of particular um, democratic dancing, dancing where as many people are benefiting from that experience as possible. Um, so uh, dancing where that represents the nation, that represents equality and and lack of hierarchy and stuff like that. So um, so that's one. So there's the nostalgified version of that. And then there's kind of the version that I'm trying to look at, which involves looking at the nostalgic tra- contradictions and trying to find a, a, an alternative way of thinking about it. So first of all, the nostalgic version of Dance for Democracy relies on some interesting foundations. First of all, it relies on this notion that movie stars being so generous that they will give up their time to make sandwiches and jitterbug with soldiers as a symbol of democracy has a slight irony to it or a big irony to it in that it really is, it is class-based, right? It's an, it's an idea that the rich and famous are so generous, they're so patriotic that they will give up their valuable time to dance with soldiers who are, you know, possibly giving up their lives, giving, certainly giving up, you know, giving up careers, giving up, leaving families, leaving loved ones and shipping off to war. And so there's a, there's already a hierarchy uh, at the root of a kind of uh, vision of democracy. Now, I'm really, I'm not saying this to debunk that the volunteer work that the people in the motion picture industry or anybody did, uh, I really am not trying to do that. I'm just saying that it, there's an interesting contradiction built into, you know, why is the Hollywood canteen more patriotic than, say, the downtown YWCA that was doing the same thing or the YWCA in uh, YMCA in um, on Central Avenue that was doing the same thing. So that's one contradiction. Another is um, that the, the, uh, the, the nostalgia at the same time remembers the Hollywood canteen as colorblind and integrated and also as white. So that's a kind of contradiction. So um, in that uh, it's so slippery. It, it, it is a way of, and this is like, you know, don't you see this sometimes everywhere in American culture? It's like there's this simultaneous celebration of, um, being past all of that, um, you know, uh, race-based uh, uh, class, you know, class and race-based hierarchy is like, oh, we're kind of, we're kind of, you know, pushed past that. And then at the same time, um, this kind of blatant representation of um, a space that that ignores that history. And so um, that's the nostalgic version. Um, here's an example, too. Like a lot of times I will see the Hollywood rep- canteen represented even today, like in a World War II museum or in a documentary or something. And the the text will say it was entirely integrated. Everyone was welcome. And then the picture will have white people on, on the dance floor and then maybe Lena Horne or and, you know another famous African-American entertainer on stage entertaining. So that's that's really an interesting separation of people dancing together, um, people being together, but in very different ways. So the site, um, you know, what nostalgia, the job of nostalgia, if you, if we put it that way, is to contain contradictions, literally (laughs) to contain contradictions. So one of the things that's interesting to do is to take out the contradictions um, in nostalgia and just sort of line them up and look at them. And so, um, so oh, I wanted to look at, um, the contradictions to see if we could come up with another way of thinking about how a dance floor could be a practice of democracy. And here I'm quoting Danielle Goldman's work on improvised dance as a practice of freedom. So how could a dance floor be a place where people are together, moving together, um, and, you know, best case scenario, something happens there with people moving together 
with the intention of kind of, of creating a place where everybody benefits from the ways that we're moving together, that we're doing something together that we couldn't do alone. And this seems to me a different way of thinking about uh, dance core democracy. So I wanted to, you know, in my interviews with people, I wanted to hear about what they did, um, you know, how they experienced their bodies on a dance floor that was um, widely represented, even at the time, widely represented as kind of the dance floor of the nation. So talking about how my body, uh, you know, what it was like to enter that club in my body and dance with other people in my body at that time also is talking about my body as part of the national body. And so um, the, the dance floor uh, has several, then several layers of ways of thinking about uh, democracy. Long um, answer. <laughs> yeah, no, but a good answer. And it, and it, and it ties into where, where I'd like us to go, which is, um, Maybe if you could say a little bit more about how, what's going on in the film, The Hollywood Canteen, and then to what extent did the people you interviewed, did they uh, affirm that image, contest that image, question that those images? Um, so first of all, start with the movie maybe a little bit, describing that if people aren't familiar with it, and then kind of move to the kinds of stories people were, were saying sort of in response to that. Sure. The movie Hollywood Canteen, which I end my book with that movie, I sort of begin it with a scene from that movie and I end it with that movie, is the most broadly distributed um, narrative and image of the Hollywood Canteen. It's, you might, you know, people might have seen it on late night television um, or not. Um, it's, it's not the most famous movie ever made, but it's also... Um, something that I find more people have seen than I would have expected. It's also available; like you can you can get it and, and watch it. It it was made in Hollywood at the same time that the Hollywood Canteen was running, and <laughs> most of the people in it were volunteers at the Hollywood Canteen, and so it's kind of a it's a um, it it's got it's it's got a lot of very interesting aspects to it. It was made after the movie Stage Door Canteen, which is about the the um, similar club and which was you know started before the Hollywood Canteen. In fact, the Hollywood Canteen was patterned after the Stage Door Canteen, and the Stage Door Canteen movie was also primarily shot in Hollywood, <laughs> starring people who were dancing at the Hollywood Canteen. So, and in fact, all of those, um, you know, canteen type movies where, where hostesses dance with soldiers, where civilians, uh, you know, civilians entertain uh, military personnel in canteen type settings. All of those are made by people who volunteered at the Hollywood canteen. So the Hollywood canteen, so sometimes when I interviewed people, they couldn't, they, they would stop in the middle of a story and say, I can't remember if that happened at the film or if it happened at the the actual canteen. <laughs> but the um, the way that the Hollywood canteen is represented in that film is very fascinating in terms of how um, how race um, how race figures onto the the dance floor because it is an integrated cast, but um, none of the speaking parts aren't integrated. The extras are integrated, and Almost every frame of that film, you can find uh, somebody who appears to be a person of color, um, you know, up in the left corner in a crowd or, you know, somewhere else sitting at a table, a couple sitting at a table in a crowd. You never once see people dancing across race. You see um, soldiers and hostesses who have shown up in, uh, you know, exact proportions <laughs> so that, you know, there are there are. Um, people of color and white people dancing in same race, uh, same race couples on the same dance floor. Um, and there's the the star couple. There's an idealized couple, uh, which is a a really earnest, really earnest Robert Hutton playing a guy named Slim Green, who is from uh, the Midwest and is a real you know real earnest guy. And then uh, 
Joan Leslie, the girl next door movie star who he gets to dance with. Not only gets to dance with, he gets to kiss her. Not only that, they are a couple by the end of the film. <laughs> so um, it's got this um, white, um, kind of idealized white heterosexual couple that rises to the to the the privileged pair um, in this uh, in this you know very managed multicultural um, image. What was the second part of that and the, question? And the second part was, yeah. you know, how did the your interviews did they did oh. they affirm, contest, or question kind of the the narrative or this very sort of democratic heterosexual uh, image that's kind of presented in the film? Okay, the 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 film was very helpful in that it could be a touchstone for people to either say it was exactly like the movie or it was nothing like the movie. <laughs> It was, you know, it's helpful to have a project that has that some kind of touchstone like that, where where um, I think people knew that I had, you know, that 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 mo- more people would have seen the movie than had actually been to the Hollywood Canteen, and that that was a, a way of explaining uh, what their experience was. So for some people, it was very similar. It was like everybody had a good time. It was wonderful. And for other people, it was like it was nothing like that. Um, I had uh, one white woman told me that there were fights every time she went. And she said that that the fights were always about race. They were always um, um, I asked her who started the fights. And she said, well, she said sometimes uh, the white soldiers would start a fight if a black soldier got too close to white women. And she also said that sometimes um, uh, white soldiers, uh, black soldiers would start a fight if a white soldier said something very derogatory uh, to them. And so there's a, a racial tension that she identified as, um, as something that she remembered. At the same time, the same person, and this was in almost every interview, you, you know, even people who really told a different story than the main, um, you know, nostalgic version, they would identify with parts of it or they would affirm parts of it. So she also said it was a wonderful place. There was no place like it. She loved going there. She loved dancing with the soldiers. Uh, she, so um, that's, uh, that's one example. I'd say another example would be um, a uh, African-American Marine that I talked to who who told me about um, looking forward to going to the Hollywood canteen. He had been an actor. He had been in a film and he was really looking forward to the canteen, both because he could go there as a, as a, a man in uniform, but he also uh, could reconnect perhaps with people in the motion ind- picture industry and get, you know, make, keep his career alive while he was in service but he said he got in there and um, he was led to a particular part of the club where there were other black soldiers sitting there. He said there were no, the nights that he went, there were no black women to dance with and that he uh, felt that he could not dance with the white women. He said that he wasn't allowed to dance with the white women. Um, when I asked him how he knew that uh, he wasn't allowed to dance with the white women, he gave me um he had a lot of interesting things to say about uh, how how integration and segregation work. That he, and he said he, there doesn't have to be a, a rope across the room, that it's something that you can feel. He, he was a very interesting um, interviewee who also gave me a different way of thinking about um, integration and segregation and rules on a dance floor that really paid attention to embodiment and the many different ways that, uh, that, that social rules are, are communicated and perceived. Well, one thing that is, I think, interesting uh, about the Hollywood canteen is um, that the, I think it was the FBI was interested in it um, and especially in its creation and what its goals were. So can you maybe explain a little bit about why, uh, the canteen caught the attention of the FBI and what they thought might be going on there. Absolutely. This was really interesting. I, I think, you know, the FBI chapter was maybe one of my favorite chapters to write about because it was, it was, it was really fascinating to, um, 
to read the almost 90 pages of FBI reports that were in the files. Of course, you know, if we were just to add up the pay, the, the text that wasn't, um, you know, <laughs> you know, redacted, redacted, crossed out in thick black marker, um, it would probably be more like 15 pages. But <laughs> it was really interesting to see that that the FBI was was surveying the Hollywood canteen before the thing even opened. And there was an agent there um, throughout. So the um, and some of the people at the canteen apparently knew this and some didn't. Um, but the um, the reason that the Hollywood canteen was on the case, I mean, that not the, Hollywood, the, the reason the FBI was on the Hollywood canteen's case is because um, of the racial integration and because um, racial integration was equated with communism. The Holly, the, there were and there were indeed communists, Hollywood communists uh, who were involved in running the canteen and in um, in the commitment to racial integration so in reading the FBI files, what you get is is quite distinct from the nostalgia in that the good Americans, the people that uh, J. Edgar Hoover is not really concerned about, are the segregationists. It's the people who are trying to get um, protection for people who want to dance across race, people who are trying to get a, you know an official statement that um, that no people who are dancing across race will not be stopped by hostesses or by um, you know by the the host in charge or whatever, which was happening all the time. Um, the people who were trying to um, make sure that this was an integrated space were the people who were being followed, and they were thought to be communists or communist sympathizers. Some were, some weren't. Um, in conjunction with that, uh, I did, you know, some of my interviewees um, were were either members of the Communist Party or um, or thought to be members of the Communist Party by the FBI because they were um, um, committed to racial integration. One of my uh, one of the interviews that I really really enjoyed. I enjoyed them all, but. One that comes to mind is with uh, a former blacklisted screenwriter, Bernie Gordon, who uh, wrote a couple of books about his own experiences of being followed by the FBI for great long periods of his life. But Bernie Gordon's um, uh, wife, Jean Lewin, who I didn't get to talk to because she was deceased, she was a member of the Communist Party and she was the executive secretary of the Hollywood Canteen. And she was very committed to racial integration. So he let me read her personal files, and I interviewed um, Bernie, and I interviewed uh, Jean's sister about her work there. So did the people who founded the canteen, especially those who were more uh, either in the Communist Party or had sympathies, so did they view the dance floor as a place to sort of make a social political statement and to see music as a way to bring people together? Yes. And in fact, uh, I mean, the, the Communist Party had been doing that for quite a while. So um, there were, the Communist Party had, had valued um, integrated dance um, and had valued, um, um, particularly valued African-American music uh, in, in the United States and folk music. There was uh, the Communist uh, Party um, was, and, and the broader popular front, um, in which not everybody's, uh, you know, member of the Communist Party, but there's a, um, there's a strong left um, um, coalition in which Communist Party can be part of that, you know, in this particular time in history. So um, the music is is definitely seen as a way of um, of getting working beyond class hierarchy and uh, trying to create a kind of um, way of being together that uh, um, 
I guess that's that's you know mutually beneficial. I, I think that's another thing is is the the commitment to democracy of communists is also something that you know the communists talk about. So it's not like um, you know some people were pro democracy and some people were against democracy. You know, democracy is what the communist party was all about. So it's also you know so and during World War II, um, you know. At the time when, you know, Russia um, is an ally, it's uh, there's a, a strong push um, among American communists to really back the war effort. So uh, Project Win the War is uh, is is what's what's um, you know, what that's what's that called, what that is called. And so when, um, you know, when I would talk for instance, Bernie Gordon, when he would talk about integrated dancing, he was like, um, it was integrated dancing was something that the communists were particularly protective of, that the broader culture was not. But also um, the Communist Party was in Hollywood, was completely behind entertaining the soldiers, um, boosting morale about about winning the war. So that actually kind of brings up kind of some interesting things because so here you've got, you're telling a story where integration seems to be supported by communists, but not the American government. It's all centered. And this dancing is centered around a form of music, uh, that at least is bad, um, it's based in African-American music, but yet has become sort of very colorblind. So it seems like it's, you're, you're telling a really interesting story, in the way sort of different ideas and different sounds and images are getting sort of co-opted in American culture, um, but like 60 years in the past. Is that, is that accurate? Yes, yes. And I like that, you know, you, you just um, listed all of these different layers. I always, uh, writing this um, project has always presented me with the challenge of how do you talk about all those things at <laughs> But I think that's what's, that is what, Swing, that's why swing is so interesting, because, you know, you could talk about um, a music that explicitly um, uh, speaks, says, you know, this is African-American music at a particular time. And people, um, you know, uh, it's going to mean different things to different people, but there's going to be some kind of way that the fact that it's African-American music is going to affect how people uh, relate to it. but swing at that moment, I mean, it's been, it, it's, it's so many things. It means so many things. It slides around. It's all at once um, African-American music. It's the, 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 the first moment in which, um, and huge moment in which African-American music is appropriated in a, you know, ginormous way um, in mass culture, mass media. People are making tons of money on it, and uh, the uh, money is locked up um, in, uh, in, uh, in, you know, the profits are going to, to white people. And the, the, it's, it's, a time, it's a time when the music it gets more acceptance um, as, a, uh, as not a... Um, uh, you know, a, a titillating music for white people, um, but kind of a mainstream music, or at least a music that um, teenagers are presumed to really like, white teenagers are presumed to really like. It's also a symbol of, of patriotism, American, you know, the American spirit. So when you see reenactments of World War II, it's always swing that's being played and the jitterbug that's being danced, even though people danced... Uh, all different kinds of music. There were there were lots of different kinds of dances and, and music that were popular uh, in the 1940s. Swing rises up to be the symbol of uh, of patriotism at that time. And even I think that that it's that's what's interesting about swing is its effectiveness to mean many things to many people at the same time, and to um, to do. I mean, this is, isn't this what. American culture so often does is take um, something like, you know, take an African-American musical form and somehow um, have these battles about it within it, um, even when um, and, those, and and it's more the, the more 
um, the, the debate doesn't go away. Like the debate never goes away about, about what the, what is the race of that music? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so what were there some other good and or good or surprising stories that your interview shared, but they just maybe didn't quite make it into the book, um, that you still want to kind of talk about or share? Yeah, you know, yeah, of course. I mean, there's tons of stories that that didn't make it into the book. Um, I think um, the hardest thing about organizing interview material, because I, I interviewed about 60 people, and a lot of those interviews were quite lengthy. Some people I talked to more than once, and when you try to take that material and put it into a book, you end up with um, uh, some people that you'll spend a lot of time with because that story can do a lot of, uh, you know, that story gets at a lot of things that people talked about. Um, And then other people, you'll have several similar stories. And so what you'll write about is the pattern of that story, that this is something that frequently came up um, and you might use one example, but then you'll, collapse everybody else's story into that. And that's always painful because every story is different. And there's certainly, you know, if I could have uh, spent uh, more time writing about the interaction, I would have even started maybe remembering things myself about that interview that I don't actually get to talk about in the book. So I think what I think what I am happy with is I think I did get to get most of the um, most of the themes that came up in the interviews. Um, I'm trying to think of a particular story that didn't make it in or a particular interviewee that I didn't spend enough time with. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Here's one. I got to talk with uh, Roddy McDowell's sister, Virginia, <laughs> and I loved her. She was so interesting. And she's in the book a tiny little bit, but I sure would have liked to have spent more time um, uh, with that interview because she she had a very interesting perspective. They were she and Roddy were already actors, and they were living in um, England, and uh, in the in the 30s they were they were British. They were living in England, and um, when the war was uh, was looking really bad. Um, their mother took the opportunity to take them to Hollywood to, to, so they would be safer, but also to see how the kids would do in the movies. <laughs> and Roddy did quite well. <laughs> so did Virginia, but she was not the star that, that her brother became, but she, she acted in the movies and had quite an interesting, um, life in Hollywood. So she was, she was really interesting to talk to. She talked about, um, about what it was like to be a British, um, person in Hollywood during World War II and how, um, she said that most of the, what, what she, what she talked about that most of the people I talked about didn't talk about is she said, you know, most of the guys, that they knew that were killed were British. They, it was not, you know, of course they knew Americans that were killed as well, but they said most of them were British. And so that was uh, something on her mind a lot. Her father, uh, their father was in uh, the British, I think, merchant Marine. And so she would wait for word from her father and she would dance with the soldiers and her family, uh, her mom and her brother. And, and she uh, would, would hang out with, she said there was a community of British character actors who lived in Santa Monica. <laughs> we would hang out with them. <laughs> and, uh, and they also, the mother would bring home um, soldiers from the Hollywood canteen, which was, I mean, according to everything I've read, that's absolutely against the rules. You're not supposed to meet soldiers at the canteen afterwards. But a lot of people apparently did. And, uh, with uh, Virginia McDowell's mother, who had actually met uh, her husband. Her mother had met her father in a similar kind of situation where um, uh, during World War One. So entertaining soldiers during World War One. But um, uh, anyway, they brought home 
soldiers from the Hollywood canteen who would spend the weekend. Uh, they would be forced to go to mass. I believe she said they fed well. And she had these hilarious pictures of soldiers carrying her brother around like he was a little boy. And he was small, but he was not that much, not terribly much younger than they were. But he always looked much younger than his age. I would have liked to have written more about about her. She also showed me a picture in her scrapbook of, of her brother. And she said, she said, this picture is taken by one of my favorite photographers, Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> so, you know, that was uh, that was very special. But each one, each one, you know, if you're um, if you're an oral historian, if you're a good oral historian, you're an improviser and you go into a situation with the preparation. You don't just go in cold. You go in with the preparation of of knowing some basic things about, about the person, whatever you can find out, you go in with the preparation, um, of, of, you know, you have a, a few things that you want to start with, and then you're prepared to follow that person where they go. And, the, but the most important thing about the readiness is to be present in the moment of that interaction. It, it totally is an improvisation they're reading you, you're reading them. It's like a dance um, where where I move affects where they move, where they move affects what I, where I move. Um, I figure out how to answer a question, not by the truth of who they are, but by what I'm feeling about who they are at that moment and vice versa. So it's a, it's a really interesting practice. Um, well, one of the real treats of the book is that um, – Though all these dance metaphors that you're talking about here in terms of your methods, you incorporate them in the writing. So how did you decide to to make that kind of unique um, or those choices uh, as you were writing to sort of really put your methods out there and kind of what it's like to be an oral historian? Oh, I can't. You know, Rich, that makes me so tremendously happy that you you comment on the writing. It makes me so happy because – I really do. Um, you know, I am a writer. I am a writer. I've always been a writer. I want to be a writer. That's why I'm an academic, because I thought if I'm an academic, you know, people will like it that I'm writing. You know, so it's it's it makes me so happy to hear that. And and for me, writing is thinking. Writing is a way of thinking. So um, I think what what this book allowed me to do was to really stretch out in writing in ways that I was more afraid to do. Um, say pre tenure, so it it uh, you know not to break it down like that because I don't I've actually never felt that constrained. Um, I've always used elements of creative writing in my work, but this I felt like this was my opportunity to really see what writing could do um, in terms of uh, of theorizing complex ideas. So. When I would um, when I would come up with a contradiction or a um, when I would feel reoriented in an interview, I would try to find ways of writing that could get at that feel of it. So I, I wanted the writing to be a dance. I wanted to invite readers to dance with me. I wanted to make space for readers to think differently than I did about what what was going on. I wanted to create space in the writing for people I didn't get to interview or for people who um, who the interviewees wouldn't know about, people who... Because, you know, when you think of yourself on a dance floor, a crowded dance floor, you're seeing and interacting with the people who are right in front of you. So you might dance with, with you know, 50 people, but there's other people who are who are beyond the heads and shoulders of the people that you're dancing with, and their movements are also shaping that space and shaping what's possible. So I, I wanted to find ways of writing that could that could creatively bring that in, not just make a you know a paragraph where I I say that and move on. I wanted the writing to to grapple with that. Well, one of the other dances that you're you're doing in this book is that you're dancing between uh, the 1940s and sort of the post 9/11 America. Because, yes. um, and so, how do you dance uh, with these sort of oral interview partners um, through 
um, kind of the nostalgia and patriotism that's sort of happening in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. Okay, this is an area I honestly didn't know I was getting into this when I started into this project. Because I started the interviews for the Hollywood Canteen Project in the year 2000. And at that time, World War II seemed very, very, very far away. When I interviewed people, it felt far away. We had conversations about the past, and it really felt like we were talking about the past. We were talking in the present, but it really felt like we were talking about something that happened long ago. Um, you know, I mean, I was teaching courses like uh, I had this, you know, World War II course, that a popular culture World War II course that I used to teach in at University of Kansas. And prior to, to uh, 9-11, the students would say things like, oh, well, Americans wouldn't believe this kind of, you know, propaganda today. You know, they, they didn't buy, like, even they tended to like Rosie the Riveter better than some of the other propaganda. But even then they were like, gee, you know, I don't think that a poster would make people act differently today. And then you've got, um, you've got post 9-11. Uh, and of course, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to speak lightly about that. That was a, a tremendous, you know, tragedy. Um, and but what really was eerie to me is here I'm writing this book and after 9-11 all of a sudden there's all of this um, uh, flashback in popular culture um, to World War II popular culture and so you've got comparisons to the the uh, trade towers and other attacks uh, with uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor um, not a whole lot of uh, discussion of what's different about those two um, historical events. Um, and then you've got, um, you've got the New York Times reprinting Norman Rockwell stuff. You've got uh, swing dance, jitterbug imagery popping up everywhere. And you've got um, people um, waving flags. And there's a kind of... Um, uh, there's a, a double time that, that gets inserted into my oral histories that's even more intense than the usual double time of oral history where you're talking about a past and you're talking about it in the present. So that my interviewees and I um, both were talking about when we talked about World War II, it really was obvious that we were no longer um, talking about World War II. We were talking about uh, U.S. Um, we're talking about the nation. We're talking about the nation at war. So uh, interviewees would tell me um, their their opinions about what was going on in in the world. The world events uh, kept changing and kept in the present. People talked less about um, the uh, 9-11 attacks as time went on because I, I interviewed people between the year 2000 and the year 2010. So people would talk about wars of the present throughout that period. And um, every time there was a, a change, um, that would change the, the ways that the interviews went. What, what, I, what I really, what I guess was powerful to me about those conversations was how different the people I interviewed were in terms of their opinions about, about war and about um, America, about patriotism, and this this was this again was a very stark contrast because there's all this celebration at the same time um, as the popular culture is is you know remembering the the popular culture of the past. Uh, there's also all of this stuff about the greatest generation. What's great about them is they're all the same. They all agree on everything. They're all you know 100% behind the government. And here I am talking to people in the present who are members of that generation who are watching themselves being celebrated on television as united, and they've all got different opinions. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so that was something that that I think uh, gave me a, a renewed passion and a different passion for the project. Which I, I started to feel like it was very, very, very important to remember the difference and to remember political difference as something um, that's that's important to acknowledge um, in democratic practices. I see it. Um, I don't see, uh, the, you know, a kind of celebration of everybody being the sa on the same page as uh, emblematic of democracy. 
So, and that generation, I, I don't, you know, I don't know that they did either. And some did, some didn't. There were, there were people uh, with, with all different kinds of, uh, of, of political orientations. Well, thank you uh, for allowing me to take so much of your time uh, today. But before we go, is there a project uh, on which you're working on now? Sure, Rich. I think um, there, there are several projects I'm working on now. And right now, I'm really interested in taking some of this, um, some of what I've learned from working on dance floor democracy. I'm really interested in taking some of that into research. And so actually, you know, research practice. So actually doing improvisatory collaborative research with other people. And I've had a couple of really positive experiences with that. One is with the Melba Liston Research Collective. Melba Liston was a trombonist, arranger, jazz trombonist, arranger, composer, band leader who, um, who hasn't, who hadn't really been written about very much. And so, uh, I was a member of a, of a collective of, uh, feminist, uh, jazz, musicologists, all of us with different training. And we, we went in and, and went through her papers together and, and uh, worked on a special issue of Black Music Research Journal on Melba List. And that was a blast. I mean, really, we didn't just separate it out and write different parts. We went to the archive together and went through 40 boxes of lead sheets and scores and we talked and we you know, we played music and it was, that's how research should be. You know, it was, it was, it was dynamite. And I'm also working on a project uh, of a music. There's a musical instrument that Pauline Oliveros uh, developed a few years ago. That's called the adaptive use musical instrument. And if people listening want to look it up, it's, you can actually download the instrument for free. It operates on camera tracking. And the idea is for, um, bodily movement to trigger sound and that it is adaptive so that it's supposed to adapt to every body. Uh, she designed it for people with limited mobility or very narrow range. We all have limited mobility, right? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm flying to San Francisco today, but uh, I'm going to take a plane, <laughs> you know, so we all have limited mobility but narrower range of ability and, and wider range of ability can play the same range of the instrument. It's so cool. And, and you can do um, mixed ability improvisation with, with people with using free improvisation, this instrument, which is monetarily free and you can, any group of people of living bodies um, can make something together uh, with this instrument. Well, thank you very much. Um, it has been great talking with you today, Sherry. It's been great talking with you today, too, Rich. Thanks so much. You have been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. Today, I've been talking with Sherry Tucker about her new book, Dance Floor Democracy, The Social Geography of Memory at the Hollywood Canteen. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening.